Hello, I'm Harry Doncaster and this is the Forgotten Book Podcast. In each episode, I will be speaking with a creative to learn more about their process and how fashion or fashion history has affected their creations. I hope you enjoy listening. Due to the current climate, this and our foreseeable episodes will be conducted via a phone call rather than in person. We're sorry if the audio quality is impacted. My guest today is the award-winning designer Alejandro Gomez Palomo. His label Paloma Spain is accredited with modern queer clothing and often praised for its genderless and exuberant collections. As his brand name suggests, Alejandro is deeply connected to his Spanish roots and references its fashion and art history for many design points. Today we'll be discussing his time in London, the origins of his brand, how celebrity culture has broadened his audience and lifelong need to create. Alejandro, welcome to this episode of the Forgotten Book Podcast. Thank you, Harry. So I wanted to just jump right in and speak about something that a lot of interviews and a lot of press pick up on. Blurring gender norms has become a calling card for Paloma Spain. And you've mentioned that clothes you've created are gendered as they're designed to fit a man or a woman's body, but the aesthetic isn't. Does gender impact your designs or how you design? Yes, I would say yes, inevitably, you know, very much to do with the passion I feel for men and, and for men, men's figure. And, and in reality, it's men that I really understand because, you know, all the fashion experiments and experience that I've had growing up, they were only with myself. You know, men's wear and, and men's body has always been in, in the center of my work. And I don't know really how to create without having a man on my mind. And this is something that, that I keep doing because I want to push the brand towards women's wear more and more, you know, and, and open that customer sphere. But it's, it's really, really hard for me to create when it comes to thinking of a woman. It's actually much easier for me to sell women the clothes that I make that they can identify with that I initially have thought of for a man than really thinking um, in a woman at, at the beginning of you know creative process. So it's always been a man. You've never really thought to design for women. Is it because yeah. you, did you start to design for yourself before you designed for anyone else? Kind of. Well, I started experimenting with fashion with myself. And well, the thing is, you know, as I grew up and I knew I wanted to be a fashion designer in general, I thought women's wear was the only option because I had grown up you know, women's shows and, and all this. And, but I've always felt like I was missing some something, you know. There was a link between me and, and women where that didn't quite um, work and I didn't understand really what that was about. And it wasn't until I went to London and I saw the option of, of doing a menswear and, and kind of mixing, you know, all my references and all the imaginary that I had on mine, of course, influenced by women's wear and women's couture could be translated into men. All of a sudden, I discovered that was a a much more natural process for me. Ah, And so mentioning London, you graduated from the London College of Fashion back in 2015 and founded your label the same year. Can you tell us a little bit about this time in your life? Well, London was really a time of growing and maturing and changing. I I moved in um, right after I finished my high school when I was 18 and, and I was completely by myself and I knew I was going to move there to become who I wanted to be later although I didn't know what that was going to be it was a very inspiring time you know I felt London was really the place to be and was really a a place where I could feel comfortable and feel identified and feel inspired pretty much every day 
it was a beautiful time. Although, you know, by the end of my stay in London, by 2015, when I finished my school and, and Paloma Spain kind of started, um, it was a time when I was already quite um, homesick. Much I thought I was going to be in London for my entire life and I loved it so much. Those last few years, I, I started traveling a lot to Spain and realizing how much I actually loved my country as well. So it was in, in London where I really wanted to do like a kind of homage to who I am and where I'm from and, and I started the brand Palomo that was my surname and decided to name it Spain as well. Just so it was clear in, in my class and you know in my year that I was the Spanish designer doing something very very Spanish and, and that I was very very proud to, to be in that and, and that was something as well that set me apart from, from the rest of, of the designers. And and I have to say now, I haven't been back to London almost since then. It's been like almost four or five years. It almost feels like a, London was um, my ex-boyfriend, someone that I love so much. And now um, it's hard to see. I, I, I feel that I'm going to go there um, again and I'm going to fall in love again and I'm going to want to be there. So um, there's something is stopping me from, from going back and, and connecting with those memories. That's so interesting. So you really enjoyed your time in London, but Spain is such a big part of you that it felt strange to be away from it? Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed London a lot, but then, you know, life as a student in London is, is quite hard. I had to work from the first week that I moved to London to, you know, the last day before I moved back to Spain. And and it was a tough life, a, a very lonely life as well. You spent most of the time in the metro and, and all this. And, and then I realized every time that I was calling to Spain how, how easy and how beautiful it was to be in touch with all your friends and family and constantly seeing them and, and I just thought it was much easier, much more beautiful the life in here than it was for me in, in London. I ended up here, something that I never thought it was going to happen and at the end it did. No, it sounds great and I think it's always nice when you return home and it's the right feeling there, there's no way you can beat that. Exactly. I mean, of course, I wanted to escape from here when I was a teenager. I hated, I hated being here. But then, you know, you know, you change with time, and you change as you grow older. And then, and when I saw the opportunity of creating something in here, and and that was only going to be possible if I was here, and if I had the support of of my family and friends, and if I had, you know, a bit of a more local cheaper kind of studio and and things like that, I could I could really focus on on what I wanted to do. That's how I decided <laughs> this was my place for now. Mm, wonderful. So you've spoken about kind of starting fashion very early and pondering into menswear, but was design and creation always part of your life, even as a child? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I, I think I've, I've always wanted to be a fashion designer. I think it'd be a, at the age of four or five when my parents said I, I could be that because I kept sketching little dresses for princesses or Barbie and then I you know I played Barbie my entire childhood and it was more about the clothes rather than the actual doll play. It's always been about clothing in, in my life and, and my parents knew I had some some eye and some passion for, for that. Since I was a little boy I, they had a restaurant while I was a kid and I kept sketching every night. I, I think all the customers that came to the restaurant at the time they, they keep a sketches of what I would do as a kid for them, you know, and, and it, I've always been the one, um, someone was getting married, someone I knew uh, wanted some special dress or something, they would always 
asked me to do some drawings, even if it wasn't serious, but they knew that I really enjoyed drawing and imagining clothes on, on people. Mm. That's really interesting. It's really nice that you started at such a young age. I wonder, was it your mum or was a close family member interested in fashion or was it something you kind of just discovered on your own? There's never been a, a really interesting fashion world where when I was born, it, it's more about the the sewing and the, and the making. My neighbor was a, a dressmaker, um, not a very serious one, but she gets sewing carnival costumes and things like that. So I've always been in her house with, with her, her three daughters. And I could see, you know, the creation of garments and, and things because I was really little. So I think it comes more from my neighbors and probably my grandmother who kept sewing as well than, than my mom, although my mom has always had a, a certain taste for fashion, something that she has taken into account and that definitely has an impact on, on me as well. I've, I've been shopping with her since I can remember and I remember being me the one that chose the, the clothes for her at a really, really young age. Hmm. You're now not creating on your own and you've got a wonderful team around you. How would you describe this workspace you've created at your atelier, not too far from your hometown? Do you all listen to music together while creating or is there kind of a rhythm? Oh yeah, we, we definitely listen to music together. Um, it's, it's very different to, to change the genre of music in here, though I, you know, I, I, I like many genres of music and all that. And, and in here, it's, it's pretty much all about Hispanic folkloric music but i i enjoy that as well i feel extremely lucky to have the studio that i have and i think that's one of the reasons that is keeping me here we you know we managed to rent this huge huge andalusian cortijo house with outside area with you know orange trees and it's beautiful because i you know downstairs is the studio and upstairs is my house so there's there's always a connection there's no doors in between so i would wake up every morning with the sound of the iron turning on and, and the sewing machines starting to work and, and I take the coffee with my seamstress and the people that work for me every morning and it's a very kind of familiar place. Also, it's in the middle of nowhere, no one would expect that such a unique universe is created in here, but I think that's what makes it really, really special. And and now I can tell now that we get people from all around the, the world to come and intern for us. They really enjoy this as a, as a very unique and different experience. It's not what they would expect for a fashion job, but I think there's a certain magic already created within the walls of this building. Mm, so you created your own little family in a way? Yes, a little family. And that's not that easy to find in a small village like the one we are in. That's so lovely. It must be a great experience to work within. It's beautiful. There's a really beautiful atmosphere in the studio every day. Hmm. Historically referenced collections that focus on masculine extravagance have become the foundation of your label. What about these ideas of joining past beauty with the future interests you? Well, I I think to understand the the way men dress today or the way men have been dressing in the last few years, we really have to look back and and see what happened throughout history, you know? I I think there's a lot of points that we miss now and there's a lot of things that we don't know. Uh, The work that I do, as extravagant as it can look, is nothing compared to, you know, the clothes of Louis Couture and and things like that. 
for me, it's been kind of my job to inform whatever happened in the past and see that this is possible for a man and try to translate it into the future. It's not that I want to go back to the past and dress like that again, but I want people to see and understand that men had many other possibilities in the way they dress in past times. And, and maybe we can look back at, at that now that we are free and see what we like from there, take it and try to introduce it to the future. Now, now we're very lucky to have all these paths that have informed us and, and that have told us how society was in the past. And, and we're able now to select and pick the ideas and the moments that we really like and try to make a future out of that. For me, it's been key to understand the present and the future. Hmm. So do you look at references and old paintings? Is history and art history something you look into to inspire you? Oh, definitely, definitely. I think art history has been one of my passions as well. And you can tell that a lot of my work comes directly from paintings without even knowing all those images they come to my head and, and I reproduce them because it's, it's really what makes me click and what makes me feel emotional towards clothing or, or towards aesthetic in, in general. I can imagine in your time in London you explored a lot of galleries and all of the museums. More than ever, more than I do now that I live in the village, I, I think London is, is a great place, uh, especially for that. Now I think the cultural offering there is huge. You know, and you're constantly refreshed with new ideas. You're constantly inspired and you're constantly feeding yourself with new ideas. Hmm. You've mentioned previously that part of your daily routine is walking your dog and that many of your <laughs> ideas are formed during these journeys. How do these walks help? Well, it's the only time of a day that I get out of the studio and, I, and the noise stops and, and I don't have people around and, and I'm lucky to, to be able to cross the road and, and be directly in the countryside. So, so I have really long walks with my dog, listening to music and, and nothing else. And it's really a straight line where I can even imagine myself being a gorgeous model walking on, on a runway. So uh, I don't know, for some reason, I keep thinking along the day what things to do and, and it's never too clear. And then when I go to the countryside and I come back full of new ideas and, and new ways. And even, you know, in the middle of a pitching, I would go and walk the dog. And when I come back, everything is, is clear. Yesterday, the concept that I had been working on for these last few months for um, hypothetically new collection that we never know when it's going to happen is already changing with the time. We keep questioning ourselves and questioning what fashion is going to be like in the next few months or in the next years. So definitely those walks help me clear my mind and, and keep thinking of what is Paloma going to be in 2021 after this terrible time. It's lovely and to have that clarity and that escape from everything is really wonderful and to be doing that in yeah. nature is such a luxury. Totally. I feel very lucky to be in a village right now doing this confinement. In the last year, I keep thinking, oh, maybe I should go back to a city and, and influence my, my stuff with the people. And, and now I can only think how lucky I am to have a, you know, a, a nice, spacious space to be able to live and work and, and create and also... Mm, definitely. Beyonce is a big part of how many people became aware of your creations when she wore Paloma Spain in an Instagram post announcing the birth of her twins. How did this come about? Well, in a very funny way, um, we had sent her clothes like a year and a half before or something like that from my second collection when they returned the clothes and apparently they said she had liked some of the pieces and she would like to, to make them to measure and buy some pieces. So we did make like 10 looks for her 
So we send it and, and soon after we hear that Beyonce is pregnant. So um, I thought, okay, you know, this is never going to happen. She's never going to wear the clothes. This is love in her incredibly big archive or, or whatever. And, and we're never going to be able to see this. So almost a year after or nine months after one summer morning, um, my cousin messaged me really early in the morning and I can see on my screen, is this Paloma Spain or is, is this yours? And I went and checked and saw that picture and, and those few seconds of awakeness, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing. You know? And I remember coming downstairs and showing it to my team and all being crazy and almost crying and, and celebrating because that had actually happened. And that moment was so special. We were so, so proud of that she was wearing our design. Amazing. It sounds like a magical moment of celebration. Yes, yes. You're right. It was the moment where everyone really got to know who I am. Or for me, it was more a moment of validation. There was a lot of people speculating of my future or how it was going to be or if this was going to be real or not. And then from that moment on, everyone started really trusting my work and, and the brand and everything, especially in here in Spain as well. It was the moment when I was like, oh, okay, this is for real. This is, this is happening. Definitely. And similarly, Harry Styles, Miley Cyrus and numerous other celebrities have worn your creations and you've designed the stage costumes for the singer Rosalia. Does your creative process differ when you're creating these custom garments? Totally. Um, it, the process is completely different when I'm creating something for a show than something for Rosalia, no? especially with her, that her concerts and her stage appearance are so moving. You know, she keeps dancing and jumping and, and, and doing things. So the way we work for her is completely different. She has to be comfortable. She has to be able to move. It's just a, a completely different way of, of working when, when you're working for a stage. I mean, it's, it's different with Harry Styles, for example, who has a more static kind of appearance in, in stage and, and he can work out some tailoring. But with Rosalia, she has to be comfortable above everything. So you're creating a garment for them as a person rather than an ideal? Yeah, definitely. And the, the inspiration doesn't really come from, from me and from my ideas. It comes more from what they're doing, what the story they're telling, and what they really want to say with their new work. Especially for Rosalia, that I've been really close to the process from the beginning. You know, I was able to listen to her music to create a kind of look she wanted to launch her last album. So amazing, what a great experience. You once described the Paloma man as young, handsome and virginal with this complexion, a little angel boy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the man you designed for? Well, there's always this fantasy of an estate, you know, a really young, um, almost childish feature boy that I've been portraying in, in my work. And this is something that I've really been obsessed all my life, no? because I think it's that age, it's that moment of when beauty is, is the purest and when beauty is at its most. As I say, this is only a fantasy of a certain moment of creation, but of course the Paloma Man can be many, many different men these days. I love finding Paloma boys who are older and that dress Palomo in, in different ways or, or they might have stronger bodies or they might have more manly features and things like that and, and I still identify with them. I think the idea of the Palomo man is growing and growing also in the shows. It's not anymore always about angels. You have many different boys with different racial features. So that, that was my initial idea but I think the Palomo man also grows and evolves and becomes real too. Interesting. 
Queer is a term that has been associated with a number of your collections and your work could be seen as a modern visualisation of gay culture. Has this been a conscious decision or do you feel like the industry has tried to label your work to understand it better? It's never been a conscious decision and it neither was being a genderless brand. I never make this decision conscious, you know, it was a natural way of creating collections. But of course, I understand that, you know, you need to label things for people to understand it. And of course, and, and very proudly, I represent a queer community, but I couldn't really tag or name before I started the brand. Hmm. So it's more subconscious or unconscious than it is anything else? Yes, it's definitely subconscious. I, I'm not that, I don't have all those strategies and marketing strategies in my mind when I created <laughs> And especially more I didn't at the beginning when I was creating this man. I wasn't thinking of, you know, homosexuality necessarily when I started creating the brand. He's a very sensible man, whatever sexuality he was. And I think now more and more we can see the spectrum is really wide. You don't really need to tag a thing within a community necessarily. Definitely, that idea of freedom is really beautiful. I think that's what resumes the brand the best, you know, and, and that resumes the Paloma boy and everything. You know? There's a feeling of, of freedom and pride. Mm, definitely. Attention to detail is often overlooked in contemporary design, but a quality your work is celebrated for. Is this a reflection of your love of historic dress or just that each element of a garment is important to you in the narrative? Well, I think it's, it's a reflection of my learning in fashion. No, it definitely has a lot to do with historical dressing, but it has a lot with, with my education in London when I was working at the couture department at Liberty, and it was there when I really got to understand what couture was like, what collectible clothes should be like, how much attention you pay to those details, and the magic that was involved in every piece. You produce bags and shoes and accessories alongside your mainline collections. Do you design each element in conjunction with the other or is each category a separate narrative? Normally, if they would come together with the story of a show, of a collection, and that's how we were doing it before, but more and more we're trying to create this mainline of products that um, represent the brand, whichever season it is. And I think more and more the season of kind of fashion um, is going to, to disappear. So there's a bit of both. There's a thinking of, of, okay, it has to go with the collection, it has to represent the message, but it also has to, to be able to be in your wardrobe forever and, and that doesn't necessarily match with a certain collection or with a certain fashion moment. Having something that lasts forever in, in those accessories is something you want to be wearing for many seasons. Hmm. I really like that idea of creating something forever. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's what I want to do with all my clothes. I, I feel when you buy Palomo, and I hope this is what what's happening in reality, you know, you add those pieces to your wardrobe and you want to look at them forever, you know. Every time you open the wardrobe, even 20 years have passed and maybe the silhouette is not as relevant, you always want to look at it with love and care and it's always going to bring you really good memories. I think the purpose of my brand, and especially more and more in this situation, is to really create clothes and everything that can last forever in your wardrobe and then you're going to be emotionally attached with them. Hmm. Well, I can't think of a better way to close our conversation than that. So I think we'll have to finish off with the Forgotten Book podcast questions. Yes. So first up, what's your first fashion memory? Um, uh, Saint Laurent, 
last show, the the show that he did, um, collecting like kind of recollecting all the all the cultural seasons that he had had, and and I remember each showing in the news and and me watching it with my parents in my living room and and really questioning myself and questioning my parents what was that what what is it that fashion represented who was all around and that's definitely you know an image that I will never forget and and I would say it's my first. Wow, it's such an impactful show, and it's a it's a great memory to yeah. have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Many many Galliano flamenco shows as well. I remember watching John Galliano flamenco shows in in the television or or something really briefly, and then I kept recreating those parallel kind of ruffled dresses for my little Barbie dolls and styling it in the way that I had seen at the Galliano show with little bonnets and bras over the dresses and things like that. Wonderful. And next up, are you forgetful? Yes, definitely. Nobody has <laughs> ever answered that question, no. So you, you've joined the crowd there. And finally, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading about a gay Victorian underworld. I'm reading this book called Prince Eddie and the Homosexual Underworld and kind of getting to know all those stories that really happened in, in the Victorian time and all the scandals, the, the Cleveland Street scandal and, and and everything that happened around that play, that kind of homosexual brother in the Victorian times in London where, you know, many relevant people from the time were involved, such as Oscar Wilde, Lord Byron, or Prince Eddie himself. So that's what I'm about to finish right now. Oh, how fascinating. I'll have to add that to my reading list. Well, Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Forgotten Book Podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Harry, for making time for me as well. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and understanding Alejandro's work and the instinctive way he creates. It was wonderful to hear how connected he is to the fashion of the past and utilising its beauty to create something new for the now. For more episodes, subscribe to the Forgotten Book Podcast and to discover our publications and other projects, follow our Instagram at The Forgotten Book. Thank you.